LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Listen without limits. Unchain your brain. Change your thinking. Change your life. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Steve Taylor who joins us to discuss his book Extraordinary Awakenings from Trauma to Transformation. Extraordinary Awakenings is a compelling investigation of how intense psychological suffering can lead to a dramatic shift into a new expansive identity. Why do some people who experience the worst that life has to offer respond not by breaking down, but by shifting up into a higher functioning awakened state? Perhaps more importantly, how can we emulate their transformations? Over many years of observing and studying the phenomenon of life-changing awakening through extreme suffering, Steve coined the term transformation through turmoil. He calls these people shifters and shares dozens of their amazing stories in his latest book. In addition, Steve uncovers the psychological processes that explain these miraculous rebirths after years of struggle or devastating loss, addiction or imprisonment. He highlights a number of lessons and guidelines that the shifters offer us. Readers will find not only riveting stories of transformation that show the amazing resilience of the human spirit, but also hope and guidance to call on during their own struggles, together with inspiration and profound food for thought. Hello and welcome, Steve, and thank you so much for joining us once again on LegalizeFreedom.com. Hi, Greg. Great to be with you again. Today, Steve, we're discussing your latest book. It's entitled Extraordinary Awakenings from Trauma to Transformation. Before we dive into that, just give listeners a brief potted bio of yourself. I am an author. Uh, I've written, I think it's, uh, well, I'll have my 14th book, I think, coming out this year, later this year. I write books on spirituality and psychology. Uh, but in the academic world, I'm a psychologist. Uh, I'm in the field of transpersonal psychology, which is essentially spiritual psychology. I'm also a poet. I've published three volumes of spiritual poetry. Now, you have written, um, we're taking the, you know, the title of your book uh, in mind here, you've written about the experiences of people who have suffered tremendous loss and uh, trauma in their lives and have not only kind of come out the other side, but have kind of had their being elevated and, and transformed uh, literally in very profound ways. But this, as, as far as I know, is the first time you've brought all of this together and, and had stories from many individuals which you've gathered together and recount in the book. So what was the genesis of this? Did, were, were you um, learning about these experiences, writing about them, and then just thought, like, I need to put this into, you know, a, a sort of a cogent volume because these stories are worth sharing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's partly that. I mean, I've been writing about spiritual awakening and researching spiritual awakening for maybe 15 years now. So people have contacted me to say that they've had a, an amazing story of spiritual awakening. 
And I've done a couple of like academic studies of spiritual awakening where I've encountered some really incredible stories. You know, people who've suffered um, bereavement or addiction or even imprisonment, uh, even, you know, in the context of warfare. So people, you know, they, they I've learned that they can undergo this radical transformation of identity in a lot of different traumatic situations. So I wanted to kind of organize it a little bit and sort it out, sort the kind of organize it into different themes and topics, different areas of transformation, such as combat, imprisonment, addiction, and so on. And I thought, yeah, there were so many amazing stories, so many kind of miraculous transformations that I really wanted to share them. I suppose this has been a learning process for you as well in terms of research and and, and psychological insights, you know, even just the process of bringing all this together and, you know, reflecting on and hearing these stories, you know, it's, it's, I guess it's moved your own insights and, and thinking on in, in this area. That's true. Yeah. I mean, what, one thing I've become aware of is the the incredible resilience of human beings. You know, I did some research, aside from my own, the stories I've collected as a researcher, I did some research into um, uh, transformational experiences in concentration camps in the Second World War, um, in the gulags in Soviet Russia. You know, so people who were living in the most extreme, you know, brutal, uh, horrific circumstances you know, to the point where they were they were close to death from starvation or disease, um, and but they, you know, there were still many cases of this transformation occurring. It was almost as if, um, you know, in in Indian Hindu philosophy, they have a concept of the siddhis, which are kind of psychic or supernatural powers that arise in higher states of consciousness. It was almost as if, you know, when people are in extreme states of deprivation, they occasionally spontaneously tap into these supernatural forces inside themselves so it's almost like supernatural forces of resilience that sustain them in situations of deprivation and also a kind of an inner radiance uh, uh, an innate quality of, of well-being even blissfulness which can arise in extreme situations and help to keep a person alive so yeah it was, it was kind of a, to me it was a journey into the the amazing capacity for resilience and healing within the human psyche. Now, a concentration camp of the type, for example, we saw with the Nazis during World War II, is a particularly uh, traumatic combination of physical and, and psychological trauma. Uh, if we think back maybe a few centuries, let's go back to medieval times, you know, when, when day-to-day life was a, lot, was a lot harsher, you know, in physical terms. Um, you know, people may have shorter lives, more physical deprivation, uh, you know, suffering the extremes of the weather, perhaps not having enough to eat, etc., etc. If we contrast that with the late 20th, but particularly into the 21st century, the, the nature of disturbances and trauma that people suffer, it's so much diseases almost um, of civilization in a way. It's psychological. You know, mm. so many people suffer in their minds, even people who have not just, uh, you know, uh, their needs taken care of physically, but are actually very, very well off. You know, there's a whole, um, yeah. there's a whole thing of like, you know, the, the, the trauma suffered by the very rich as well. So it does seem to be that the disturbances of the, of the minds are really what beset our civilization, certainly the, you know, in advanced industrial civilizations of the West, mm. you know, in the, in the early 21st century. Yeah, I know what you're saying. It's, it's, it's almost as if suffering has shifted up a, a different level from physical 
to psychological. It's a bit like Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs applied to suffering. You know, in in the most sort of in situations of deprivation, at the most basic level, you have the the physiological suffering of hunger and a lack of security or shelter. And you move up, you move, you move, you move up the hierarchy, and you get more subtle, rarefied psychological sufferings, which in some ways are more, you know, they're more insidious because they're more difficult to identify and more difficult to deal with. I mean, if you're hungry, it's very simple. You know, you can alleviate your suffering by eating. But if you suffer from depression, you know, if, if you're living a kind of fairly affluent lifestyle, but you're still depressed, it's more difficult to identify the source of your suffering. So it can be more, it can be even more traumatic, you know, because it lasts for a long time. And it becomes more intense as it progresses. But but having said that, you know, I think early human beings also suffered a lot of psychological suffering. Um, you know, the, um, bereavement was very common. You know, the, the death of children, for example, must have been incredibly traumatic for our ancestors. And also the, the, the kind of social suffering of being oppressed by a landowning aristocrat who owned your land and exploited and oppressed you. So, you know, um, you know they, they definitely had some forms of psychological suffering too. Well, I guess what I'm thinking of, partly at least, is I've written a lot and, uh, you know, done a lot of interviews centering around the idea of a, a lack of meaning and purpose, you know, in modern life and, and how, what, uh, you know, negative mm. effect that can have on, on us in, in our minds and also that therefore in our bodies as well, you know, because as, yeah. as within, so without, you know, the mind suffers, the body cries out. Um, as I like yeah, to say, that's... and there's there's almost these diseases of um, afflictions of affluence. Um, mm. that, you know, you have your needs met, but yet, uh, that you know, our materialist culture um, basically advertises itself as you know, you get these things, and therefore you will be happy. When you get these things and you're not, then I think that this is crisis of meaning uh, can yeah. it, it kicks mm. in, which is maybe something that didn't quite exist so much in the past. Um, I know there were times of great uh, material affluence. Even you go back to ancient Rome, you know, there were there were people who lived with extraordinary wealth that you and I can only, you know, imagine. Um, but, yeah. but nonetheless, if you combine that idea of like, you know, get these material things and that therefore, you know, you, you can be happy that way. If you combine that with... Um, the something else I've written about a lot, you know, technology and the alienating effects mm-hmm. of that, you know, technology and yeah. loneliness. You put all that together, I, I do think we've got, we are at a sort of a nexus of something that is unique to our yeah. time. I agree. Yeah. So, so certainly to a large extent, I agree. Yeah. There, there is a certain point where you realize, I mean, you know, it's, it's a question of social values as well. You know, as you say, our culture teaches us to, to try to find well-being and affluence and, in seeking status and success and power and so on. But once you gain those things, you realize quite quickly, uh, well, maybe you don't realize, some people don't realize and just keep trying and trying to get more and more. But some people realize that it's not working. And, and you know, if you're lucky, if you have a degree of, um, you know, um, intuition, you, you realize that there is another way. A lot of people do realize that there is another way to seek happiness, and that's to turn inside, to turn away from the external world and to turn inside themselves and to follow a path of inner development. So I think a lot of people do realize that in our culture. I always think the Beatles are a good example because you know, they became incredibly famous and incredibly wealthy. But by 1966, 67, they were exploring Indian 
you know, spirituality. They were learning to meditate. They they kind of intuitively realized that there was another way, you know, to find well-being. There was a, a truer path towards well-being. So I think that's, you know, that's maybe a positive sign of affluence that a lot of people do turn inwards. And th- there's another thing I wanted to mention, which, the, which is that I think there's a type of depression which isn't so widely recognized, but is quite common in, contempor- in the contemporary world. And that, that's what I call spiritual depression. And that, that exists because our culture doesn't generally uh, allow an outlet for spirituality. And there, there are a lot of people who have innately spiritual impulses, who have spiritual experiences, who've maybe even had a spiritual awakening. But because it's not culturally supported, and because they don't understand or accept what's happened to them, they repress it, which causes a lot of frustration and you know it comes out in in depression and feelings of anxiety um so that that that's um you know that's one consequence of modern civilization but I, but i think um spirituality is becoming more mainstream and it's allowing an outlet for for that kind of those kind of impulses now i th- i think churches uh, the church if we can use that expression i know this is not one monolithic thing there are different religions and i'm, I'm thinking i guess of christianity now because it's the only thing i've got uh first-hand experience of uh, i've really they have not stepped up in the, no. modern, in the modern age i think a lot of people just find nothing there there's no uh, you know avenue of connection with the transcendent i think a lot of people find you know experience in a church uh mostly mainline certainly to to just to be meaningless it doesn't speak to them and i think yeah. a, a lot of um religious leaders have become afraid to to ironically enough to actually speak about spirituality in a meaningful way you know they're almost afraid of like their mm-hmm. their their whole reason of being yeah that's true i mean i mean there are some positive aspects of religion it can serve as a framework for spiritual development but all too often, it's it's conceptual, it's abstract, it involves, you know, uh, taking on a belief system. And, you know, a lot of people are not able to, to do that. They're not able to take the step of taking on these concepts, taking on these mythic ideas, which uh, are all too obviously, you know, fallacious. Um, but, but, you know, there is a growing movement of spirituality without religion. And that's where... I think a lot of people instinctively sense that's where meaning and purpose may lie in an area beyond religion, but which is still, um, you know, which is still a landscape of spirituality, which they can explore. Yeah, because in, in their original conception, you know, the, the mainline, you know, Abrahamic religions were trying to express something, you know, ineffable, which, you know, is a kind of contradiction in terms, but, you know, they were trying to articulate something almost beyond words. And then that got lost somewhere along the line. But that inherent need, as you say, you talk about this, you know, emerging spirituality, that inherent need is still there. And that's what we, you know, we see manifesting. So it's just that it's mm. now happening without the bounds of mainline religion. Uh, but it, it says something that that is happening. It indicates a need within us, doesn't it? You know? Yeah. And also maybe it indicates that material, the materialist worldview isn't working either you know that people are sensing that the answer does not lie within materialism not materialism in the sense of consumerism or that's related to it but i mean materialism in the sense of believing that the physical world is all there is and everything can can be explained in terms of uh, physical uh, particles or forces so i think yeah people are i think people are sensing that 
materialism cannot explain human experience or cannot really explain the natural world very well. And also that materialism is implicated in the, the ecological crises that we're facing. A lot of the environmental issues that we're facing uh, stem from an attitude of disrespect or, and disconnection to the natural world. So I think people are, are seeking something beyond materialism as well, and they know that religion is not the answer. Well, indeed, uh, I'd refer listeners to your book, Spiritual Science, in this general area. And uh, we did an interview around that, which um, is linked up on this interview page. So you're absolutely right. The, the materialist worldview is, is no longer tenable. It is breaking down. I think it's just taking a while to reach the mainstream, in, in not only in science, but in society in general. The, the last couple of years, we've all been going through this pandemic situation and that's had a tremendous toll on people's mental health. We've seen that. But there has all, there have also been some positives coming out of all that. I'm thinking now, and this is really speaks to your idea of transformation through trauma, people questioning some of the fundamental assumptions about life, the universe, and everything as a result of being through these experiences. People keep asking me, because I've got a background in post-traumatic growth, people keep asking me if I think the, the pandemic and the lockdowns have led to post-traumatic growth. And it's difficult to say because post-traumatic growth normally takes quite a while to manifest itself, a year or two at least. But, you know, my feeling is that a lot of people have gone through post-traumatic growth. I've met a lot of people who've said that they've reevaluated their lives and a lot of people who've said that they found meaning in simple things. You know, they, they've they found a kind of happiness through through living quietly and simply and just living, you know, taking each moment on its own terms rather than rushing into the future. So I think people have, have, have relearned the value of simple things. And, you know, and also in general, I don't think, I think people have learned that not to take things for granted so much, not to take the life itself for granted and not to take the people in their lives for granted, not to take their health or freedom um, and the other aspects of their life for granted. Maybe maybe that's manifested itself in what what some people are calling the Great Resignation, which is you know that, that um, apparently um, many people are changing careers or giving up their jobs entirely. You know, after the lockdown, they decided they they want to do something different, something more meaningful in their lives, and that seems to be a lot. A lot, in fact, a lot of people in my book, Extraordinary Awakenings, that they said that after their transformations. They couldn't, you know, they couldn't face continuing their lives as architects or designers or marketing executives. They wanted to do something different, something more meaningful, something more altruistic. So that is definitely a, a sign of transformation and, you know, possibly a sign that the pandemic has led to growth. Yeah, so your book is very timely in that way because obviously, you know, you, you didn't have the pandemic in mind when you, when you were working on some of this material, but that came along. And it is a reminder really of like, uh, of what to pay attention to what's really important in life. And I think that that comes across in a lot of the, the if not all actually, the, the mm. subjects in your book really were just, yes, they've had a, they've managed to you know, elevate their, no, they've, they've survived the trauma that befell them. They've managed to come out in some kind of elevated sense of being. And one really important dimension in that is like, you know, just, don't if you want to do something don't wait it's now or, now or never in a way and if not now then when uh because mm -hmm. especially the, the stories about you know, bereavement 
and people suffering potentially terminal illnesses. It's like these things can happen to any of us at any time. You know, we, I'm not trying to sound morbid, but you know, you or I could die tonight. You know, mm. that, it, that it, it is possible. And of course, we don't go through life dwelling on these things, but I, I just think it, having that somewhere within your consciousness as part of a, a guiding principle is a good thing because what's happened in a lot of the uh, cases that you recount is that people were taken by surprise, of course, because we don't, mm. we don't expect, um, most people anyway, don't expect bad things to happen to us, but you know, that can, that can all change just like that blink of an eye. Mm. I completely agree, Greg. I mean, you know, encountering death, becoming aware of the reality of death is in itself often a transformational experience. And, you know, I spoke to a lot of people who had been diagnosed with cancer, other people who'd um, attempted suicide, other people who'd come co close to death as soldiers on the battlefield and other situations. And, you know, it's 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 so powerful when you become aware that death is real then you also become aware that life is temporary fragile and precious as you said and you know i, th I think a lot of human beings unconsciously assume that we're immortal death is not real you know we 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 unconsciously assume that we've got endless amounts of time to do what we plan to do and we take things in our lives for granted because we feel that they're permanent. So when you believe, when you realize that these things are not permanent, they're fragile and temporary, then it, then everything changes. Then everything becomes, you know, valuable and, and life becomes much more intense. And it's as if a, a veil falls away. It's as if a veil of familiarity falls away and like, wow, you're living in this much more intensely real world, you know, where even nature itself looks much more beautiful and much more real. So a lot of people I spoke to, they talked about how amazing it was to live in this more intensely real world where just to look at things, just look at the sky or trees or or the uh, the blossom in their garden, everything was much more real. And it was as if they never really looked at these things before. So it, it's a kind of rebirth, but it's, but it's a rebirth into a state that human beings should always be in. You know, this is the way we should live. So it, it makes it clear that normally we're not living up to our full potential. We're living in a, in a kind of half sleep, in a kind of daze. Yeah, what you speak about there, way of looking at the world, it's, it's almost like the psychedelic experience in a way. You know, people who have had such experiences often speak about, uh, quite often it doesn't last that long afterwards, but they speak about coming back into the, the sort of quote-unquote normal world and, mm. and, and seeing things very differently because they had this, they, they gained this insight. And it also reminds yeah. me of uh, how we are as, as children, really. I think children live oh, yeah. in, in that, uh, that permanent state of wonder, uh, unless, of course, they unfortunately themselves have suffered any trauma or, you know, mm. whatever that, that can happen. But in our, in our natural born states, you know, I, I think that we're, we're quite we're, we're quite different to how we often become as adults. I mean, Joseph Chilton Pierce, mm -hmm. I don't know if you ever read him, but he talked about, oh, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, co you know, consciousness um, in different stages and how up until age six, it's one thing. And then at 12, uh, you know, uh, coincidentally or not uh, around the time, you know, of adolescence, consciousness mm -hmm. changes again. And then another six years at 18, when we become adults and it becomes kind of, uh, fossilized in a way, you know, and a lot of people cease any kind of inner development 
Mm. Uh, when you know when they do become adults, they go through the rest of their lives in a very fixed mode of consciousness. Whereas I've always thought of life as a constant evolution, and I think that's what some of your subjects, you know, rediscover in a way. Mm. You know, is that we're not fixed and static psychologically. You know, we can we can literally change our minds. That concludes part one of our interview. Part two will be available soon in the subscribers area at legalizefreedom.com. Legalizefreedom.com.